Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Last week, we launched a series of messages that we entitled Current, Navigating the Waters of Today's Same-Sex Culture. And I made an important point last week I want to emphasize again this morning, and that is this. This little series we have is, in essence, one message, but it's over three weeks. And so if it's your first time today, I would beg of you to get to our website on wildwoodchurch.org and access either the audio version from last week or the video version from last week, because it's just, again, one message over three weeks. So if you're coming in now, you're coming in right in the middle of it all. And last week, we laid out a lot of what our heart is in tackling this particular series. Now, we've entitled it Current, which somewhat has a double entendre to it. Current meaning it's a current event, but current also picturing uh, a current as you would have it in a river. And last time I shared a personal experience I had with a strong current, I want to share another one with you this morning. Another experience that we had came in 1998 when my wife and I were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, and we went and rented a condo in Leavenworth, Washington. And part of what we wanted to do is to go whitewater rafting, and we did it with the Osprey Raft Company. And we went whitewater rafting on the Wenatchee River there, which is a class three of four whitewater river. And so we went on a 4.5 hour float down the Wenatchee. Now my wife snapped a picture of me, I want you to see here, and uh, I'm 47 years old there. But two things stand out to me about that picture. First of all is the incredible farmer's tan that I have Uh, Mr. White Boy there. And then the second thing that stands out, the very hip aviator shades that I was wearing, uh, kind of a classic look back in the day. But when we went on this trip, we had the experience of being carried along by a current. And the key when you're being carried along by a strong current is your guide. And your guide is the one who will navigate you through the current safely. The guide is the one who is aware of the potential hazards. And when you go down the Wenatchee, there are some real whitewater holes that are there. Some of them have these names, the rock and roll. Uh, Another whitewater hole is the drunkard's drop. And then my favorite one of all was the suffocator. And uh, we did manage to go through all of those, and because of our guide, we got through on the other side. But whenever you face strong current, we need to be aware and alert to potential hazards, potential perils, potential pitfalls that may befall us. And here we are dealing with a strong current in our culture right now today, where we see the same-sex culture surging in incredible ways. And as we tackle this subject matter, I want to emphasize that our guide, where we're going to get our cues from how to navigate the current, is not going to be from Hollywood. It's not going to be from society. It's not even really going to be from our friends and our family. It's not even going to be from certain church and denominational leaders. 
our cues on how to navigate this current are going to come from Jesus himself. They're going to come from the word of God. And we want and desire for God to be God and allow him to speak to us in this arena. Last week, we mentioned a verse from John chapter 1 and verse 14 that describes Jesus. It's a beautiful description. It describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. And that's what his ministry was. He delivered truth, but he also delivered grace. And we said that we do not want to be, actually, there's four different kinds of churches. There's First of all, a permissive church, we don't want to be one of those. A a permissive church just rationalizes and winks at what God may say is wrong or sinful. We don't want to be a judgmental church that just attacks and mocks people who have same-sex attraction. We do not want to be an indifferent church where maybe out of fear of reaction, develop spiritual laryngitis and just never talks about this subject matter. Uh, Our goal is to be a grace and truth church. And a grace and truth church would say that anything that God says is sin is sin. And a grace and truth church would also say, though, that God's grace is the hope and the healing that every one of us need. It's through God's grace that we can be transformed. Now, I shared last time that in my own particular life, all the way back to my high school days, through the present time, I have been friends with people who have gender identity issues who experience same-sex attraction. It's gone on for multiple, multiple decades. And I've interacted with them on this subject matter and talked about the process and what what would we do, what should we do, how do we honor God with all of this. And I I do want to emphasize again also this morning that I have no disrespect, no lack of concern for, no hates towards somebody who may have same-sex attraction in their life. I have absolutely no desire, none, to denunciate or demean someone for whom Christ died. Now, today, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at some truth, and so we need to roll up our sleeves, okay? We're going to cover a lot of material today. We're going to look at the primary passages on this subject matter, and three of them are foundational, and three of them are pivotal. The three foundational passages we're going to look at reflect God's design when it comes to marriage and relationships. And then we're going to look at three pivotal passages that directly address homosexual behavior. So that's the plan of where we are going today. Now, part of the fact that this current is surging more and more is the increasing promotion of revisionary interpretations of classic understanding of Bible passages. There have been a lot more revisionary interpretations coming out, and in essence, they're really not new interpretations. They're interpretations that liberal scholars for years have promoted to detour around what seems to be straightforward in Scripture. But what is new in recent times has been there are now a few who promote revisionary interpretations who fly the flag of evangelical or fly the flag of Reformed theology. Uh, One of those individuals is a wonderful seminary professor by the name of James Bronson. Another one of those individuals is a young man we've mentioned before by the name of Matthew Vines. And they are promoting these revisionary interpretations. Uh, In the case of one of them, 
They have a close family member who is a practicing homosexual. And in the case of the other, uh, he himself is same-sex attracted, and it may very well be that those experiences in their life have colored their conclusions. But that's between them and God. By the way, I've mentioned Matthew Vine's book, uh, God and the Gay Christian, and next week we're going to have available to you a resource sheet, and we're going to give you all kinds of resources, but one of which will be a link to a free ebook that gives a biblical response to Matthew Vine's book. But I do want to be very transparent with you. Uh, when these brothers put forth these revisionary interpretations, it's really disappointing to me because I see rationalizing, I see bending, I see inserting of ideas, I see these interpretive gymnastics to try to get classic passages to say what they want them to say, and that, that bothers me as someone who is a student of the Word of God. So we're going to spend a lot of time with truth. Are you ready to do that? Here we go. Let's begin by looking at these primary passages First of all, the three foundational passages, and the very first one of those foundational passages is found in the book of Genesis and chapter number 1, verses 27 and 28. Chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And I want to read those verses. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the book of Genesis means literally the book of beginnings. When we go back to the book of beginnings, we're going back to the headwaters of the divine design for the human race. Look at verse 27. It says, God created man. We could easily translate this, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created mankind. Male and female, he created them. And what we have here in chapter 1 of Genesis is more than just some story about Adam and Eve. What we have is God laying out a divine pattern. And you'll notice that part of that divine pattern is he creates mankind, male and female, he created them. Mankind is created in the image of God, but the image of God is even broken into male and female. And males and females are image bearers of the image of God, and they are expressions of the, the image of God, but they're different. Men and women are, if you haven't noticed, are a little different physically. We're, we're different emotionally. We're different psychologically. And God is laying out the principles here. Remember, God is the inventor and the definer of what marriage is really all about. Now look over at chapter 2 for a moment, and we, we want to look at the second passage. We're going to move through this stuff fairly quickly, but I wanted you to see it all. Verse 18, and then verses 21 to 25. Let me read verse 18 says, and what happens in chapter 2 is that God zooms in. We get a little closer look at all of this. It says, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him. Drop down to verse 21. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we have actually set before us in this set of verses, chapter 1 and chapter 2 together, the threefold purpose of marriage that God had when he designed it. There's three purposes for marriage. The first purpose is to mirror God's image. The first idea of a man and a woman coming together in marriage is that they would mirror God's image, that male and female together would reflect the heart and the character of God. The second purpose of marriage in God's design is that they would mutually complete one another, that they would be companions. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make the woman to be his companion. And then the third purpose for marriage in God's design is to multiply a godly legacy. In other words, the man and the woman were to come together and have life-giving impact from generation to generation to generation to generation. And isn't it interesting that only a male and a female have the potential to reproduce? And some, some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, I understand that, but you know, I know some males and females who are married, uh, men and woman, a man and a woman together, and they, they can't reproduce. How does that all fit into God's purposes for marriage? Well, we need to remember that Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3, where we have the fall of humanity, and the fall has affected our bodies, and even a husband and a wife can sometimes struggle because that a fall impact on their bodies might make it difficult for them to get pregnant. But it's still God's design. Male and female is the divine pattern. Verse 23, she shall be called woman, isha in the original language of Hebrew, because she was taken out of ish. You have ish is the male, and isha, just the feminine ending added to it, is the female. And do you remember what happens? They come out of one, right? And that's why when they get married and they come together, it says they become one flesh again. This is just God's design from the very beginning. And even later on in the book of Genesis, you remember when when the, the humanity was rebelling and God says, I'm gonna bring a flood upon the earth and I'm gonna destroy people and we have the ark, and what happens with the animals in the ark? They come two by two. They come paired. They come male and female. It's just a reflection of God's design. Now, I, I want to share with you some revisionary interpretations that people will um, put forth on passages like this, and I'll tell you what one of them is regarding what we've looked at here in this particular chapter uh, one individual comes and they say, well, you see, what's, what's really important here in Genesis chapter 2 is what it says in verse 18. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now you say, the heart of really what God did at the beginning was he designed companionship. And what's important is companionship. It's not male-female that's important. It can be male-male. It can be female-female. What's important is companionship. It could come in different flavors, but that's the heart of what God is communicating here. Now, to be honest with you, that's a very convenient interpretation to come up with. Uh, Just to highlight one aspect of this, it completely ignores the whole emphasis on male and female. And frankly, it dismisses two of the purposes of marriage because if it's just all about the center one, mutually completing one another, if that's what the whole design is about, we're leaving out male and female together mirroring God's image, and we're certainly leaving out the purpose of multiplying a godly legacy over time. Very, very important that we don't leave those purposes out. Here's what I want us to see from all of this. What we're seeing unpacked for us here is the reigning assumption of the entire Old Testament. The reigning assumption of the entire Old Testament is we understand God's initial design for relationships and marriage as it's laid out here. Now, there's a third foundational passage we want to look at. We've got to go to the New Testament in order to see this passage, and it's found in the very first gospel in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. I'm going to read verses 4 to 6. I invite you to follow along as I'm reading. Subject matter of marriage has come up, and Jesus himself speaks, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. What's he doing? He's going back to the headwaters. And for this reason, a man shall, verse 5, leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two, male and female, shall become one flesh, so that they're no longer two but one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, what is really interesting is when you read a lot of the material on this whole subject matter uh, of homosexuality, there will be people who will make this claim. They'll say, you know, Jesus never mentions homosexuality. Nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John does he ever mention homosexuality. So therefore, he must approve of it because he doesn't mention it. And I I, want to make two observations about that thought. Here's the first one. Jesus also does not, in any of the four Gospels, talk about child abuse. Jesus also, in the four Gospels, does not talk about rape, but that does not imply that he approves of those things. But here's the most important thing I can say about that thought. Well, Jesus never mentions homosexuality directly. You know what he does do here, though? What does he do? He affirms the divine design. He affirms the design of marriage that it involves a male and a female. Jesus is embracing the norm and the natural understanding from the Old Testament, and he's reemphasizing it now in the New Testament. And so this is also the reigning assumption in the New Testament. The reigning assumption is that this is what we would consider to be marriage and the norm, male-female 
relationships. So we're looking at primary passages. We've very quickly gone through three foundational ones that talk about God's design. Now we want to look at three pivotal passages, and these passages are going to directly address the issue of homosexuality and homosexual behavior. Does God directly address homosexual behavior? The answer is yes, in the Bible he does, Old and New Testament. Does he classify it as acceptable or as unacceptable? And again, it's important for us to remind ourselves that what God thinks about this is very crucial because one day every human being stands before God. So understanding God's perspective is vitally critical for us. So let's look at these pivotal passages. We're going to see two from the Old Testament, one from the New. So let's go in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter number 18. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter number 18, and we'll look at the very first pivotal passage that addresses homosexual behavior And that is chapter 18, verses 6 to 23. Now, as we're looking at these passages that that address homosexual behavior, it's important for us also to understand that most of the passages in the Bible that address homosexual behavior don't laser target it. Homosexual behavior becomes part of a list of behaviors. It's part of a list of behaviors that God would say would be wrong or would be outside of his will. And I just want us to understand what's happening in the book of Leviticus right here. Remember the historical events. Israel had been in Egypt and and God had led them out of Egypt and now he was leading them to the land of Canaan. But the land of Canaan had some very unholy people in it. There was some sinful behavior in the land of Canaan as they were getting ready to journey there that God did not want them to imitate. And that's the thrust of this chapter. Notice he says in verse 3, he says, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is in the land of Canaan being done, the land to which I'm bringing you. Don't walk like they walk. Don't live like they live. Look at verse 24 of chapter 18. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things that are going to be in this list, for by these things the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. I'm judging them for these things. I don't want you to be imitating that particular behavior. For the land, verse 25, has become defiled, and I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Look at verse 27. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all of these things. So the land is defiled by the behavior that I see. In verse 30, thus you are to keep my charge that you don't practice these customs which are being practiced before you. Don't defile yourselves with them. I happen to be God. And this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm communicating. Now, with that whole thought in mind about the context of the chapter, I want you to see as he begins to make this list, look at verse 6. He says, none of you are to approach any blood relative of yours to uncover their nakedness. Now, um, that little phrase, which is a phrase the New American Standard uses, which is very literal, by the way, from the Hebrew, is a frequent euphemism in Hebrew for sexual intercourse. In fact, the New International Version in these verses we're going to look at 
uh, translates it, you're not to have sexual relations with. A New Living Translation says you're not to have sexual intercourse with. And then there's a whole listing of these cases. Like, for example, verse 15. You're not to uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, for she's your son's wife. You're not to have sexual intercourse with your daughter-in-law. Verse 20. You're not to have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. That's just out. That's not behavior that I want to see, God is saying. Verse 21, you're not to give any of your offspring to offer them in child sacrifice to this God Moloch that exists in the land. That's behavior you're not, you're not to not do. Verse 23, you're not to have intercourse, this is pretty graphic stuff, with any animal. Nor should any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. He said, and that's the kind of behavior I don't want you to imitate that's going on in the land, but don't imitate all of that. And right in the middle of this list, we have verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. That's just behavior, God says, I don't want you to imitate. Now, why does he cover all of this stuff in this chapter? Why is he talking about it? Because all of these things, all these various things, are threats to God's design for the family that he clearly states in the book of Genesis. Now, there's a second passage. It's a twin passage to this. It's just a couple of pages over. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 to 16, I invite you to just turn there. And again, what we have in chapter 20 is a list of behaviors. He says, this is what's going on in the land where you're going in. I don't want you to imitate those things. And and he mentions actually human sacrifice in the first five verses of chapter 20. He mentions um, consulting a medium or a spiritist in verse 6. Don't do that. In, in verse 12, he's going to mention actual incest. He says, don't do that. In, in verse 14, he says, don't marry a woman and her mother. And I'm just thinking that I can't imagine marrying my wife and her mother but that apparently some people were doing that. He says, don't do that. Verses 15 and 16, don't have sex with animals again, which must have been an incredibly gross behavior that was going on. And in the middle of all of that, we have verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. That's behavior I don't want imitated. And notice he says this in verse 23 of the chapter. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Don't fall into the same behavior patterns. Now, I want to make this point of emphasis. Homosexual behavior is just one of many sins that God says are outside of his will. Now, now, how do the revisionary interpretations interact with these passages? Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations. This is something that you might hear. Well, you're in the book of Leviticus. I mean, hey, we don't have to follow all those Levitical laws. I mean, you know, in Leviticus, like in chapter 19, 19, uh, verse 19, it says that you, you're not to wear garments of mixed fabrics. Well, wow, I'm wearing garments of mixed fabrics today. We don't pay attention to those laws in, in the book of Leviticus. Or, for example, in chapter 11, verse 8, it says that if you touch the skin of a dead pig, you are unclean before me. 
And you think, man, it's football season. How am I going to toss a football without being unclean? Well, how does all that work out? Well, it's important to understand in the book of Leviticus that some parts of the law were dietary and they were ceremonial, and God built them in because he wanted to build some distinctions between Israel and the people in the land of Canaan. But we are no longer under obligation to follow the dietary ceremonial law. We learned that from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. That was part of God's plan for the nation of Israel. But there's still the moral law that is laid out in the book of Leviticus. And what is interesting to me is that God never judged any nation because they wore mixed fabrics. That was part of his idea to keep them distinct, but that really wasn't the moral part of his law. And the moral standards of the law are transcendent, and we're going to see they resurface in the New Testament as behavior that God says is out of my will. Another revisionary interpretation goes something like this. Well, yeah, this is some behavior that they weren't supposed to do, but it was limited to behavior that was in the practice of idolatry or or the male cult prostitution in the pagan temples. It it doesn't refer here, this behavior doesn't refer to all homosexual behavior, just homosexual behavior that's done in the name of idolatry, then it's wrong. And you know, it's interesting to look at these passages, and, and I say, I don't see any limits stated anywhere. And not only that, but if you use consistent logic, homosexual behavior is only wrong if it's done in the arena of idolatry, then we would have to say uh, incest is only wrong if it's done in the arena of idolatry, or sex with animals is only wrong if it's done in the arena. No, we wouldn't go there. Uh, In fact, that's quite nonsensical. You know what strikes me is how straightforward these verses are. Look at chapter 18 again, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. Now that's pretty straightforward and plain. Chapter 20, verse 13, if there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act in the eyes of God. Now, sometimes revisionists like to say, well, this is just talking about forcing someone else of the same sex to have sex with you. But it's interesting here that when a man lies with a male as those who lie with the women, both of them have committed something that's wrong before God. Now let's go to the New Testament, and we're going to look at the third pivotal passage. It's found in the book of Romans. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, and then you have the book of Romans, and we want to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 32. And I know we're covering a lot of data, but it's just something we have to do. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 32. And again here, um, we have a list of behavior that God says in his eyes is rebellious behavior. And and, and we learn from from, uh, these verses that part of what humanity's problem is is that there's been a failure to acknowledge him as creator. We see that in verse 21. There has been a failure to show gratitude to God. There's been ingratitude to God. And all of that in verse 24 has has led to the point where God says he's going to now give humanity over to impurity. 
And we even have a, a list of behaviors that appears again. And particularly, I want you to notice verses 29 to 31. And it's, it's behavior that just bounces everywhere. He says that this is the way I view humanity apart from me being involved in their life. There's unrighteousness, there's wickedness, there's greed, there's evil, they're full of envy, there's murder, and then all kinds of stuff, strife. There's deceit, deceiving people, there's malice, there's gossip, there's slander where you run someone down verbally. They're haters of God, they're insolent, they're arrogant, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil, they're disobedient to parents. They're without understanding, they're untrustworthy, they're unloving, they're unmerciful. All of these behaviors are behaviors that come from a failure really to acknowledge God as creator. And part of that list includes homosexual behavior in verses 26 and 27. Now, I want to say this before we look at those verses. Everyone in this room and everyone listening to this message is guilty of one or more of the attitudes and behaviors that are listed here in our own life. Every single one of us. And for the self-righteous who say, oh, it's everybody else who has this problem but me, we have chapter 2 and verse 1. When he says, he's making this argument, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment on other people, for in that which you judge another people, you condemn yourself For you who judge practice the same things. We've all been tainted by this behavior that is outside of the will of God. So let's look at verses 26 and 27. It says, For this reason God gave them over to some degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, how do the revisionary um, interpretations come to bear with this particular passage? Well, here's one of the common ones. It says this. What's really being described here by Paul, so they say, is that you had heterosexual people. Their natural inclination was to be heterosexual, and they were abandoning their natural inclination, and they were doing what was unnatural for them in that they were getting involved in homosexual behavior. They would say that what this is talking about is heterosexuals who are acting out homosexually, and Paul goes, whoa, 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 don't do that. Do what's natural to you. That's the way the argument tends to go. And uh, to be frank with you, and and I'm trying to be transparent, you know, that's rather convoluted to me. I, I can't even believe that someone's trying to promote that understanding because what's natural in this section is not how an individual feels. What's natural is God's creative design. This whole argument in this section, it goes back to creation. In verse 20, he says, since the time of creation, this has all been understood through what has been made. And part of what was made was male and female, and that's what marriage was to be. And in verse 19, he says, it's evident, it's transparent. I mean, how can you really argue with it? 
And part of God's creation was God's design of marriage and male and female relationships in marriage. And so when he talks about, in verse 27, abandoning the natural function, everybody historically through most every culture has understood the natural function is male and female in marriage. And so they exchange this natural function is the description. And I know this part is a little deep, but I want you to just think about it for a moment. There is a thrust about human rebellion in in Romans chapter 1 that basically says this. What humanity has done, they've made a mistake about, is they have exchanged that which is different from them for sameness. In other words, humanity takes the creator, who's very different from us, and exchanges the creator for sameness created things. God is very different from us, and in our human rebellion, what we do is we exchange God for something that is same, which is self. What women are doing that he's talking about here is they take something that is different from them, that would be men, and they exchange men for sameness, other women. And and that men take women who are different from them, and they exchange the different for sameness, which would be other men. And all that Paul's arguing is that's just a violation of God's standard. Again, revisionary interpretation comes along and says, well, this is only restricting uh, coercive gay relationships and homosexual behavior. Uh, When you would maybe take a male slave, if you were male, and you would force them to have sex with you, Uh, What they would say is that long-term committed gay relationships are perfectly fine. In fact, what they often will say is that only in our day have we really known long-term committed gay relationships. Paul didn't know anything about them. Paul wasn't aware in his day, way back in those ancient times, that you could have a loving long-term gay homosexual relationship. That's why part of the argument goes... And you say, well, Bruce, how do, you, how do you respond to that claim? Well, I grew up in the 60s. And if you grew up in the 60s, you know that in the 60s when we grew up, we thought we were the cat's pajamas. We thought we were the generation that got it all together. We really knew what needed to happen in the society. We were the most enlightened generation that had ever been on the face of the planet. And by the way, every generation has a tendency in that direction. I've been around long enough to watch some generations come behind me, and generations tend to be arrogant. We tend to think, I'm the most enlightened generation that we've ever been. And that's coming through here a little bit. Well, only in our time have we ever heard about long-term committed gay relationships. No one's ever heard of that. That's just not true. Doesn't stack up historically. In Paul's time, they very publicly knew about long-running homosexual relationships in their society. They had a form of semi-official marriage that went on in their society in Paul's day between men and men and women and women. Plato in the 400s BC talked about how in the Greek world they knew about homosexuals who were wedded all of their days. This is not a unique thing just in our time. And Josephus, the historian who was a contemporary of Paul, Uh, summarized the understanding of of the day in this way. He says, the law of Moses recognizes only sexual intercourse that is according to nature, that which is with a woman, and it eliminates or abhors the intercourse of males with males. So this is not just a unique thing 
that we only know about today. Now, I go through all of that, and I want to make this very, very clear. The Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. But when it addresses it, it's clear. And I also want to say that homosexuality is just one arena of sexual brokenness. And I hope you pick this up in all of these lists that all sexual immorality in whatever flavor grieves the heart of God. And homosexuality is just one area, one arena. And in fact, we've been confessing a lot so far in this series. The heterosexual community in terms of volume has done far more to distort God's design of marriage than the homosexual community would ever do through our sexual lust, through our unfaithfulness, through our abuse in marriage and family, through divorce. Men and women, we are guilty, and we must repent of those things. Now, as we seek to be a church of grace and truth, and as we seek to reach out and communicate hope to those with same-sex attraction, there's something important I think we need to understand. We're going to look at this quickly, and then we're going to be closing in a few minutes. And that is that there are four stages of same-sex experience. Remember, we talked about there being a spectrum of the homosexual movement. We need to not lump everybody together. There are four stages of same-sex experience. The first stage is that of attraction. This is where there may be gender identity issues, but same-sex attraction feelings And it's very important that we understand there's a difference between same-sex attraction and same-sex sexual activity. There's a difference between proclivity towards the same sex and the practice of same-sex acts. Now, I happen to be attracted to women. I'm married. But that is not sin that I'm attracted to women unless I act on that or I entertain mental lust. And I just want you to know, I have had personal friends, I have had people in my office over the other side of that wall who are right in this stage of same-sex experience. They have attraction, they have thoughts and attractions in this area, and I just want everybody to understand that thoughts and attractions by themselves do not make somebody gay. And for many people, they say, it's not a choice. I wish I wasn't like this. Maybe they try to deny it or repress it or pray it away. But that's the first stage. The second stage of same-sex experience is behavior. We get to behavior when we act on the same-sex attractions, when we commit a homosexual act. The third stage of same-sex experience is identity. This is where someone makes the step and says, this is what I am. I want to identify myself as a gay person or a lesbian person or a transgender person. This is what I'm at. I'm going to accept it. This is what's right for me. And then the fourth stage of same-sex experience would be lifestyle. This is where there is a regular practice of homosexual behavior in a person's life. And I've known people at all of those stages. I've had friends at all of those stages. I've known people who found victory from all of those stages. And again, we want to convey grace and hope. Please understand, homosexuality, just one of the list of sins that God lays out, it's not an unpardonable sin. I mean, you know, we're all sexual beings, and God created that dimension 
in life and humanity, and frequently we all distort it. We're, we're all sinners. We're all vulnerable. We all battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've all been born, as the Bible describes, with what could be called total depravity, meaning that every dimension of my life has been tainted by sinfulness. And, and sexual sins are bad sins, but they're not the worst sins. Pride is the most damaging sin of all. So there's a lot of, a lot of things we haven't addressed yet. We have a, a lot of issues we have yet to address. Things like, isn't homosexuality inborn? Uh, isn't it unchangeable? We're going to see, I believe, that predisposition is not predestination. And we even want to address the question, is this really important? I mean, can't we just let people get married how they want to get married? Is it really important? Are there, are there really no parallel perils downstream? Well, we're going to find out and talk a little bit about that. We're going to also talk about how we just respond. I have a friend. I have a loved one. I have people in my family. I mean, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? Where can I find resources? We're going to deal with all of that next week. But I do want to share with you as we close today, and then we're going to sing a closing song, an email that's found in Peter Hubbard's book, Love into Light, and it comes from a young lady in his church who was experiencing same-sex attraction, and this is what she writes. This is very touching. She says, I've been struggling with it my entire life. For the longest time, I denied it to myself and certainly did not want to come clean to anyone about it. Several months ago, I admitted my struggle to some family and close friends I've been trying to be wise in who I tell because I don't know who will criticize me or who will try to help. It's hard. It's looked down upon so badly, which I guess is fair because it's, it's an unnatural thing, but it really stinks because I need help. I need people who will be behind me, supporting me with godly counsel so that I can make it out of this mess. I have only been a true believer for a little over a year now, so I am just beginning my walk with the Lord. I just want to encourage you, speaking to the church, to go for it. There's such a need in this area because people in the church don't know how to deal with this issue. Homosexuality is just not talked about in church. So it made me think I was the only one struggling through this. And this is a horrible place to be, thinking you're the only one. Please help my other brothers and sisters who may be struggling with some of the same things. Jesus has saved my soul and taken my burdens away. I have peace and contentment in Christ. They need to know they too can have this. And the way they can know this is through the body of Christ. Anyone who is struggling with same-sex attractions, I just want you to know you don't have to be gay. And Jesus Christ cares for you the same way he cares for me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And as they're coming up, I just want to again make this statement. I've been making this over and over again. We all need to have a lot of humility because every single one of us is needy. I need God's grace and mercy. And you need God's grace and mercy. And Jesus is my only hope for being delivered from myself and being delivered from future judgment, and he is your only help. We're gonna sing these words. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are, God. Let's just pray very briefly, then we'll sing those closing words. Father, we just thank you that you are great, that you love us even with all of our blemishes, and we thank you that our hope, our only hope, is found in the person of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.